Brilliant. Well, thank you, uh, Tim, again. Uh, it's great to see you all here, and uh, it's great to be back in Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're making really good progress uh, through this uh, brilliant, I think, full, optimistic uh, book of life that we're able to enjoy uh, this term together. And here we are in chapter four. And so here we are again in the next uh, progression of this preacher's grand experiment in life. And he's been asking all the questions in life that we all have. For those of you who haven't been here, this is what we've been seeing over the past three or four weeks. This preacher sort of testing life and trying to find meaning in everything. And he's been testing life to, to the nth degree until it literally, in a, in a philosophical sense, sort of explodes around him. He's always searching for that sort of final nugget of meaning and wisdom and stability, and he's never quite ever getting there, searching for stability and firm foundations and satisfaction, but always running into this Greek word, this Hebrew word, hevel, in, in, into, that's translated fogginess. That's the translation we have here in your Bibles as vanity. It's, it's, it's like a mist. I can't quite seem to keep everything to myself. I can't seem to grasp at life. I can't seem to keep what it is that I gain. And, and if I do, well, it's gone before I've barely experienced it. And this morning, as we move on from the last two weeks, where we've been looking at work and toil and life itself and our um, existence and what we make of the times in which we live that seem so fleeting and so uncomfortably independent of us, um, issues and questions that the preacher wonderfully and unashamedly pins on the eternal hope given to man from a, as, as Tim's been saying, from a good creator God, centered ultimately on Christ, that he, he makes sense of our times and our work. That's what we've been looking at. Well, as, 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 as the preacher moves us back to the issue at hand in chapter four, he, he also moves us on to a new topic of, of this, this question of this annoying, frustrating life. And uh, as much as you might have thought, what on earth is going on in chapter four? <laughs> It's not actually that complicated. For this morning, we simply see the idea of the preacher's experiment for meaning and humanity's drive for satisfaction and progress coming up against what I think is possibly humanity's biggest problem, <clears throat> and that is uh, chronic independence, deep-seated selfishness, and our hunger for total self-sufficiency. You see what chapter 4 talks about? It can, be, it can be summed up very easily in the middle verses of our passage. Just look at that. Have your Bibles open. This will be really helpful for you. Verses 7 to 11 of, of chapter 4. Again, says the preacher, I saw vanity. I saw this hevel. I saw fogginess under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom I am, am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What's the point, in other words? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. But two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. You see? Working and, and toiling away on your own, that is vanity and unhappiness. Desiring to live only for yourself, hevel and fogginess. Working and toiling with someone else, living and fighting for uh, and alongside another person. Well, the outcomes, says the preacher, are very different. And actually, we don't need the Bible to tell us this, do we? We know this is true in life, that two are better than one. The um, atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell claimed to be on a, 
on a journey of self-discovery in his philosophy, especially in regards to human improvement and progress. And during this philosophical journey of his, he was once asked in an article, what were the obstacles to human social improvement? What, what stops humanity from constantly getting better? And, and that's actually a question that many of us are asking today in our country, really, if we think about it. A country that's blighted by strikes as our economy is choked, leaving the worse off worse off. As a, a new generation is born that will have less, earn less, and save less than their parents for the first time in half a century. As the political class seems to be riven with uh, cynicism, sleaze, a thirst for maintaining power, mono-eyed egotism fueled by blinkered thinking, etc., etc. The question is being asked in Technicolor on the BBC 10 o'clock news pretty much every night is, well, how, how do we get out? How do we maintain progress? We seem to be stalling. What's happened? How do, we, how do we fight for human progress? What are the obstacles that we seem to be facing that we need to get over for us to be, to be better than we are? And that was exactly the question that Bertrand Russell was asked. But listen to what his answer was, and it might stun you. This, this atheist philosopher said the following, what stands in the way of social improvement? Well, not physical or technical obstacles, he said, but actually only the evil passions in human minds. Suspicion, fear, the lust for power, human intolerance. The root of the matter, he said, is a very old-fashioned and simple thing. So simple, I'm almost, I'm almost ashamed to mention it for fear of the derisive smile with which cynics will greet my own words. He says, the thing we lack... The thing I need in order to improve humanity more than any other thing is love. Christian love, he said. Compassion and togetherness. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> that is an, an atheist philosopher coming to that conclusion. What stands in the way of human improvement? Selfishness and evil greed. What, what perpetuates right human progress with each other? Christian love and togetherness. And, and consider as you think of Bertrand Russell and his philosophical journey of discovery, let us remember where we are in Ecclesiastes, where this Solomon-like preacher is on the same journey of discovery, asking the same questions and not far off getting to the same answer. What is the problem with the world today? It is, says Russell, a humanity that is turned in on itself and that hates others. A humanity made up of lust and power and solo achievement and rampant selfishness. And that is exactly where the preacher gets to you today. <clears throat> this is the problem with the world, says the preacher. But whereas Bertrand Russell could actively um, see the truth that what humans needed to improve was Christian love and harmony, but not able to, to bring himself to believe that, that it was a good creator God in which that truth was centred, the preacher, as we've seen over the past few weeks, as we'll see today, comes to the same conclusion, but, but rightly centers the answer to this problem of human selfishness all on this good creator, eternal God. This good creator, eternal, loving God. And he does this. He, does, he, he sort of reveals this to us, to this issue of, 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 of sort of working for our own by bearing down on, on our chronic independence, playing two sides off against each other. In chapter 4, what kind of life does selfishness and foolishness lead to against what kind of life dependency, wisdom, and ultimately love lead to? And that brings us to one of just two points this morning, our first being that the sadness and, and, and foolishness and evil of living for me in selfishness. 
as the preacher looks around the world uh, around him, the world in which he lives and works, all he can see suggests a a serious lack of love and togetherness, isn't it? All he can see is oppression, envy, and and loneliness. It's as though he's a tourist and he's on his travels, this passage, he's taken holiday pics of the world and he comes back and we're leafing through them and he sees different scenes of the same human ailment. And and here's the first snapshot. We've got three snapshots under this heading. The first snapshot is uh, uh, oppression. The sadness and folly of living for me in selfishness ultimately leads to oppression. And actually, that's something we've already seen in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? These verses follow straight on from what we looked at last week in in chapter 3. We saw in verse 16, wickedness in the place of justice, righteousness in the place of justice, where injustice reigns and our hearts yearn for for, for justice uh, to, to be won. And the preacher picks up this theme again and now begins to show the issue behind it is selfishness and independence. Just look at the first few verses of chapter 4 with me again. Says the preacher, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. As I said last week, we are going to see this issue coming up time and time again through the rest of this book, this issue of evil ruling, good people being destroyed. And here we see it in stark contrast. On, on one hand, it is true of the world, says the preacher, that there are mighty oppressors in positions of total power. And on the other hand, there are those under them, the oppressed, broken apart in tears, no one to comfort them. And it's not as if we need to be reminded of this. Putin comes to mind, doesn't he? murdering men, women, and children for the sake of a tract of land. This week, last week, was the 70th commemoration of the Holocaust where millions upon millions of innocent men, women, and children were murdered under the hands of unspeakable oppression. And we see it elsewhere in this book. We're we're reminded by the preacher that we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Just flick over to chapter 5, to verse 8, for just a minute. And, and, And I think this actually bridges the passage that we're in this morning. Let me just read it for you. If you see in a province, writes the preacher, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. Don't be shocked. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But there is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. Meaning, don't be shocked when you see oppression on this scale, says the preacher, because humanity has so formed itself into a model whereby the power-hungry and the strong get to the very top and, and those who aren't remain stranded at the bottom, crushed and oppressed. And note the hierarchy in those verses in chapter 5. The higher official is watched by a higher one, is watched by a higher one, so on and so, sort of oppression is compounded as it goes up. Um, I stumbled across this, this brilliant uh, little poem by Ogden Nash, who captures this nature of human nature brilliantly. And and it goes like this. It says, Great fleas have lesser fleas upon their backs to bite them, and lesser fleas have lesser fleas, and so ad infinitum. And greater fleas have greater fleas, and greater fleas to grow on, and greater fleas, and greater fleas, and greater fleas, and so on. It goes on and on and on. As one commentator put it, a society is a heap of parasites, a whole ecosystem of them, and at the top are the greatest bloodsuckers of them all. We might think that's a bit cynical, but we really feel that sometimes when we look at the world. That's what chapter 5 verse 9 is getting at. 
For there is ultimately one gratefully, and who is that? Who's at the top? The king. And what is the gain for all this oppression? What is the purpose? To be committed to having as much cultivated land to himself as possible. The, the king alone profits from all these fleeced people. And, and with chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 ringing in our minds, which frames our passage in chapter 4 as we come back to that, can you see that this is the point that the preacher is making about oppression? It's, it's a result of chronic human greed and malice and self-centeredness and independence, all to the self, all to me, regardless of the people I trample on the way up and the people I have to sacrifice to stay there. The poor suffer, the poor die, and in their tears they have no one to comfort them. Indeed, says the preacher, in these bleak verses in 2 and 3, for some people it's so bad, this oppression, that it's, it's sort of better to already be dead or never to have been born. That, that's, that, that's quite a provocative statement. He's just painting a picture there. That's what wisdom literature does. That there's nothing more to be read in verses 2 and 3. It, it, it's not advocating suicide. It absolutely isn't advocating abortion. It's just posing the point that I think every generation has said of their children, goodness, I wouldn't want to be raising kids in this age. The world is an awful place to be, says the preacher. The oppression of selfish man is brutal. It's the scourge of human progress and full living. But before we move on, can you see what is said of the oppressed is also true of the oppressor? Did you pick up on that? The loneliness of the oppressor in chapter 4, verse 1. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Total loneliness. They've reached the top, but for what gain? It's a... A truth universally, universally acknowledged that with great unchecked power comes great loneliness. Look at Putin, alone, hidden from view, paranoid. Powerful, militant, but totally alone. Ostracized, unloved, uncared for, can't trust friends. He can't, he just can't, he's got too much to lose if one of them isn't quite as loyal as he thought he was. All of it is desperate, says the preacher. All of it is chasing after the wind. And that's the first snapshot of the preacher's holiday pics as he walks through human nature. Oppression. And it's very easy, isn't it, if you're anything like me, to point the finger and say, how dreadful. How very dreadful. I clutch my pearls and this is awful. Why isn't anyone doing about it? Why doesn't America do something or whatever? Well, why doesn't God do something about it? But as we continue through the passage, we settle on the next snapshot. We see that actually all of us are involved in this pattern of oppressive, selfish behavior in some way. So the next snapshot is the root of all oppression, and that is envy. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Of course, it's put starkly. Again, this is how wisdom literature works. It's a slap in the face. It wakes us up. It helps us see the problem. We might try to self-justify and say, well, actually, hand on heart, there are things that I don't do that are motivated by envy. And maybe that's right for some of us to the best of our ability this morning. But can we see the truth generally in what he's saying? And if we're honest, as we catalogue the things in our minds, the things that we do, are we sure that none of it has been done out of a desire to be... I don't know, competitive. Out of a desire at least to be seen. Out of a desire to be noticed. Out of a desire for one-upmanship. Out of a desire for personal advancement. Think of your offices on t tomorrow morning. Aren't they a rat race at times? I've spoken to a lot of you about this. It really is. You feel it. 
Even the professions which are meant to be the most altruistic, charity work, medicine, teaching, law, even Christian ministry, that that there might be a genuine desire to to serve and help, but intermingled in it is is the driven desire to succeed and and get ahead and just be one step further and and move on to that next spot, that next training place, that next position, that that next job, never to be static, always seem to be progressing, the the, the next leadership role, etc., 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 how many of us, and I'm, I'm talking to myself publicly here, have felt the full pull of dramatic personal advancement? Can we honestly say that envy hasn't affected any of our motivations? That I haven't looked over my shoulder to clock the next young, brighter thing coming up on the inside lane, ready to overtake me, waiting in the wings? That I haven't said to my heart, if only I had that job promotion that that new salary, I just know life would be different. Life would be better. I will now be able to catch up with everyone else. Some of you, and, and this is me being honest, some of you were in a meeting with me this very week in my accountability group, and I had to confess to sometimes deep-seated envy, such that it keeps me awake at night, l- looking at others and wanting to be like them, my, my self-centered, individualistic nature sort of roaring away at me desperate for Sam's human progress at the expense of others. I have to deeply repent of that in front of you. This is a truth of the world, says a preacher, and it is true of me, says your minister. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. What's the point? All of this is, is, is Hevel, the money you've saved to give to your children, the schools we break the bank to get them into, the house we've over-mortgaged to own, the, the things we over-promised in order to look good, the constant checking and everyone else around me just to make sure I know where I am in regards to everyone else. All of its vanity, says the preacher, fog. And, you know, may we never be that kind of over-comfortable middle-class church. The desire to be like that in leafy suburban Edinburgh, without even realizing it, in in this church family, I think is great indeed. The pressure we put on each other to have houses and jobs and significance. May, May we never let envy encroach on our advancement as Christians in a world that the preacher here is encouraging us to hold on to very lightly. May envy never encroach on our progress as a church under the Lord Jesus. I want to be like them. What do they do? They, they have more people. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament, doesn't he? The, the disciples come up and say, well, what about them? They're not with us. And he says, but they're doing things in my name. Leave them alone. It's not about you. It's not, a, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. May envy never encroach on our progress as a church under the Lord Jesus. May we be really quick to repent of the Western world's worst plights, envy and greed. The desire to accumulate more, the promotion of the self. But says the preacher moving on, for some people this rat race of human advancement becomes too much. And, and rather than work out how to live rightly under a good creator, God enjoying this fleeting life uh, that we've been given as a good gift from the creator, they go to the other extreme and they bomb out of life altogether. They slob and they laze about and they live off other people without any thought of others. That's what verse 5 is about. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Well, that's no better, says the preacher. 
That's the way of the fool. He folds his hands, he's just sitting there sleeping, and, and he ruins himself. Work is good, says the preacher, time and time and time and time and time again. That's what we've been hearing. It's a good gift from God. You can enjoy it. It is good to make wise money decisions. It is great to enjoy working hard and, and rightly and humbly being recognized for doing your job well and accepting new positions and enjoying what you do. That is great. It's important. Becoming lazy and slovenly, that is not the right response to a wrong work ethic, is it? Being slovenly and idle is an incredibly dangerous thing to be, says the New Testament. It's actually the root of many evils. You end up metaphorically eating yourself, says the preacher. So where's the balance? Well, I think it's found in verse 6. Here the preacher advocates the better way, the middle way. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. In other words, better is it to actually have a life that isn't double-handedly full of grasping and working and moving and toiling with both hands, but, but to enjoy working well and have moments where actually not much is happening. I'm not grasping at anything at all. In a life like we live in the West, that is actually remarkably difficult. Where in one open hand, says the preacher, rest is properly taken, where there are times of sitting and thinking and watching Netflix, I don't know, or going out on a bike ride, whatever. More importantly than that, where everything else is shut off and I say no to work, no to gain, no to, I don't know, that, that overtime pay, that third weekend in a row, and I sit with my children who I perhaps haven't acknowledged properly for a few weeks. I think a lot of us need to repent of that and put that right. Or with my friends, or with my spouse. We're just becoming like ships in the night. We function very well together. That's wrong. But where work isn't dropped or disdained altogether, where the other hand is enjoying good work, getting excited about advancing rightly under God's creation, giving him all the glory, you see? Uh, C.K. Justison says it best. He says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more and never getting there. The other is actually just to desire less. You see, here's the challenge in these verses. Will we be individuals who cultivate contentment? I have been wrestling with my contentment this weekend. Will the mark of this church family be contentment? Because I think if we manage to get to contentment, then we'll stick out like sore thumbs in this driven, competitive, acquisitive city. Oh, I know I said we'd do it for the kids. And, and so we try and fill both hands now, hoping to enjoy it all with them later, but that later never comes, and then we've lost all the time with our kids. And we never get it back. Do we need to preach to our hearts that actually our kids, our friends, our spouses, just actually prefer our time and attention rather than our money? Do you think they, our kids rather have just the one handful of my time given to work now rather than two, and, and more time with us as they grow up? That's all Toby wants from me is my time. And can you see how such thinking often stems from a lack of love? The preacher really doesn't pull his punches, does he? Listen, I've squirmed my way through prep for this sermon this weekend, and it's been extraordinarily uncomfortable. It's become the most awkward time for me as I wrestle with these very things, as Jen and I wrestle with these very questions, these very decisions. 
and it's hard. And that's often how the Bible works. It's absolutely unashamed of unsettling us, rightly, such that we seek the way of wisdom. It forces us to confront it. It's a foolish world in which you and I work as a preacher. It's a world that is so entirely made up of defending, promoting, advocating for, grasping for the self, and for no one else. A world where there is oppression and envy. A humanity marked not by love for others, driven by love for me and only me. It's a world in which you and I have to wrestle against, wrestle to live in the middle way of verse 6, choosing to work well and make good money decisions, but to make money decisions and work decisions that would beg a belief in our society. And that brings us to the third and final snapshot of this photo series. For grasping two-handedly for this type of life leads to total loneliness. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, who am I toiling this and depriving myself of pleasure? What was the point? This is also vanity and and, and and an unhappy business. We know it so well, don't we? Here's the city worker driving himself harder and harder. It's maybe why he lives alone. He's got no time for relationships. The ones he did have have gone. His marriage is ruined. There's no trace of them left. His busyness, workaholism, has killed any kind of meaning, meaningful intimacy with anyone. I was talking to Tim about this recently. We were talking about it this morning. <clears throat> he tells of a well-known multi-million dollar oil company from whom their workers, usually men, would work excruciatingly hard every single hour of the week. Some of them would even move into their offices and, and sleep and shower just so as to not let the side down, to, to, to be able to get more done. Unimaginable bonuses promised. And their wives would eventually divorce them because they just don't know them. And they'd take the house, the kids, and these men would retire with nothing to live for. And many of them ended up committing suicide. That, that is not an abnormal reality for many people in the spheres of working life that we're all engaged in. Work has robbed that person of everything, left him with nothing to enjoy with anyone. And so, says the preacher, there is ultimately nothing to live for. You are left utterly lonely. It's as if the preacher here, going through his journey of discovering life, after he's worked his socks off and done all those big things back in chapter one, living life to death, if you like, sits down at the end of his life and has accrued masses and no one is there to share it with him. To what end, he cries, did I do all this for? Do you see, it's pointless. It's a great warning to us to not allow work or wealth to become more important in our thinking than people, family, and relationships. Or even and especially gospel and, and gospel relationships. Or exhaustion from work or, or, or priorities at work prevent us from I don't meet, meeting together as believers. Or the pressures from work prevent us from, from praying together as believers once a month for only 90 minutes on a Thursday night. We're, we're just too tired and, and, and my praying relationships with my Christian friends, brothers, sisters, it's just not a priority in the light of what I need to do and prepare for tomorrow morning. Tim was telling us as men the other week, how are we making priorities for those kinds of meetings together? That's what we, as men, were looking at last, last Saturday. There's a reason why Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us spur one another on to what? Love. Love requires work. Hebrews says that because not meeting up together as believers in our relationship, it's just so easy to not do that. 
It requires us to sacrifice our own time, which we would be much rather spend on ourselves. But, but doing so pulls us away from each other, away from meeting with believers, away from loving each other in close relationships, even away from meeting with God's people to show through prayer, ironically, our dependence on each other and on him. I think that's why we as Christians in the West wholesale, every single church I've spoken to about this struggles to pray because we're so chronically independent. We're so tied up in work and able to see the benefit of prayer and its immediacy. We lose out on the wealth and the riches of our relationships with each other, the relationship with God, the, the right dependent patience of waiting for prayers and desires and fears and worries to be met and answered lovingly, dealt with over a lifetime by a loving God, on whom we are entirely dependent. That's what the preacher's been showing us through this book. Every single breath is given to us by his hand. This would be a great thing for us to discuss afterwards, I think, with each other, with our kids, with our spouses. How are we living in relation to work, with each other, in our marriage, in our relationships with our children, in our friendships, in our relationship with the Lord? What are you living for this week? What is your work life gaining for you? And thankfully, the preacher doesn't leave us there, does he? grasping at this incoherent, independent existence. He moves us on to real joy, meaning, and purpose as we come finally and quickly to, to, to point to the strength and joy of living for others in love. The Lord Jesus was once asked to sum up the law, wasn't he? And how did he reply? He says, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It seems to Jesus that the very heart of human living is love, and love isn't just commanded by the law, but it is commended by wisdom. The, the, the preacher wants you and me to see that love and loving each other and living for loving each other in Christian togetherness, as, as Bertrand Russell actually would have it, is the best way, the most sensible way to live our lives, the best way in which we can have right relationships. And from verse 9 onwards, the preacher begins to spell out for us a staggering difference between these two ways to live. It's black and white. It's clear as crystal. The contrast is so stark. And, and the first place we are brought to see this love way of living is in our right relationships with each other. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. I'm just better than the sum of my parts when we're together. I just am. It's just true. This verse is rightly read at, at weddings, and that's right. You can see why. Though marriage actually isn't the theme here. It's actually general friendship. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The preacher says, look, we can pretend to present an independent face to the world if we like, but no man is an island. We cannot live alone. We just can't do it. Together, we're so much better equipped to face life. It just makes sense. This is normal wisdom. When I got not, get knocked down, that's okay. There's another person, my friend, who's, who's standing by to help me up. It just makes sense. I can, I can live this fleeting life better, in other words, with more security and steadiness than I can on my own. The world tells me to go it alone to, pr to promote myself, but the world is just wrong. It's just not going to be better living that way. He continues, verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? He's not talking about sexual relationships here as such. Again, he's talking about friendship, the, the reality of travelers on a cold night bunking up together to keep warm. You can't just do that on your own. We used to do this in Africa. 
He used to take families out for trips. Camping in Africa is, uh, against what you might know, a deeply cold business in the, in the dead of night in the, in the center of a massive wildlife park. And we would encourage families of groups of friends to, to interlock in their sleeping bags just to keep warm. You cannot do that on your own. He goes on, verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You see, that's the main point. He's not thinking so much about one-to-one -one friendships now as, as threes or fours, groups, teams, families, churches. What a joy it is to be together. It's so much harder to prevail against when we're together. It's a reason, uh, among many, why God created families and why Jesus instituted the church. You think of any number of things that could take this church family out. Personal sin, legislation beginning to be introduced that, if genuinely passed and implemented, would suddenly put us on the wrong side of the law simply because we're preaching the Bible. Not least pandemics, war, national political crises. How on earth is a tiny church on the edge of a large happening city meant to withstand that? Well, we're not meant to withstand it alone. We can't face all that on our own. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God, only dependent sinners saved by grace, individuals who are bound together by each other. And by this third strand that the preacher mentions here, interlocking us together, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that brings us to the second realm of living wise as we close, and that is in our right relationships with God himself. We are a deeply, deeply dependent people, cries the preacher over humanity. And humanity only functions, it only stands, can only progress rightly in this fleeting life if it is marked by love. Love for each other, love for our neighbour, and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself who formed us and created us to exist in total dependence on him. That's what Bertrand Russell is missing. He got to the right conclusion that Christian love and togetherness is what we need to thrive, but he never had an answer as to where that, that was ever going to come from. And the preacher does. And we know the preacher does, not just because of what he said about this good creator God so far, but because of where he goes to next. For if we, if we peer over into next week's passage, just very briefly, we are met with the first real passage of imperatives, of commands for the believer in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to whose house? The house of God. Draw near to him. Be dependent on him. Verse 7 of chapter 5, fear, love, rely on him. And in our dependence and fear of God, this family-orientated Father God, it makes sense that he's building a church so knit together in this strength of Christian love and togetherness, dependence on the creator, that it is just true that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And this is where the preacher ends with a sobering reminder, if ever we feel like we'd rather go back to that independent, grasping life for ourselves, just how bad that way of living is. Summed up in this final parable, verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went, this is the youth, went from prison to throne, Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, he saw all living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, and yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Very simply, better is the one person who lives a circumspect life. Better is the one who didn't have very much, but had people to love him and share wisdom with, that he could progress with. That's the idea here. Rather than the king who had everything, but had no one to advise him or share his wealth with. 
Better also in this parable is the one who is poorer than he maybe could be, and he's okay with that. Indeed, better in this parable is the one who, like this poor wise youth, even through right wisdom and care, good attitude to work, rises to be king himself. And there may be many of us here who rise hard to high places in work. And that's great. And yet in this parable, who understands that he will not be remembered after he's gone. And that's okay. Because pretending to be anything else, as the preacher, is hevel and chasing after the wind. What isn't is toiling, living, working, striving together, working hard on the one hand and giving freely in the other, dependent on each other, dependent on the creator God in Jesus Christ, and ultimately marked by a Christian love that makes us stronger and more stable and fit for an eternity. Uh, Let's pray together as we close. Father God, thank you so very much for your words uh, to us this morning. Lord, we uh, often come to passages that really make us stop and think. And Lord, as we wrestle through all these big questions in life, as we wrestle with work, for, for people here this morning, their work has been so awfully hard over these past two weeks. We pray for them very much so. We pray for those who, who just struggle in, in working and who aren't grasping, but just finding work hard. Lord, we pray that you would speak to their hearts, encourage them, help them to remember that they are working in a fallen world where things just will not be perfect and that they don't need to grasp to work for significance or, or, or total satisfaction. Father, may all of us, those of us who are doing really well in work, may all of us remember this. May all of us remember to not strive for stuff and for money and for progress for its own sake but to be able to work hard with one hand and to give our time freely with the other, to to nothing, to, to rest, to giving away, to being generous, to real right relationships with each other, with good relationships with our children, with good relationships to our friend, to good relationships with our spouses, to even better relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to get this balance, we pray. Help us to be a church that is not smug or grasping, but that is generous and kind and open-handed, such that people come in and they would see us, would see the gospel, would hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and would enjoy his salvation forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.